Jogging Barrett. Baron Dovedale's Secret How I came to occupy this little room was always a mystery to me. For many years, the only thing I knew was that I had stumbled upon a secret. A secret so important that it required an institution like this to contain it. But I had flashes, moments when aspects of my past were thrown into dazzling clarity, as if suddenly illuminated by the headlights of a passing car. But they would vanish just as quickly, leaving behind a sense of something just beyond my grasp, something locked in an adjacent room to which I had no access. And then, just a few weeks ago, they put me on a new course of therapy, and little by little it started coming back to me, the secret that brought me here, the secret that has kept me here for longer than I care to remember. To begin, I will have to go back to the year I left school, 2003. I was a particularly gauche and sullen adolescent, and so when I was offered a place to read mechanical engineering at the University of Warwick, my mother urged me to take a gap year, to find myself, as she put it. Her plan was that I should move to London, get myself temporary work and save for a three-month trip to Thailand, which was the kind of thing gap year students did back then. Through some connection, she found me a tiny attic room to rent in a family home in Kentish Town in North London, and I got myself a job as a porter, just up the road at the Whittington Hospital. I was a big lad, clumsy but strong. Hauling patients out of wheelchairs and onto gurneys was no particular struggle for me, not even when it came to the obese ones. And it was just as well, because from the moment I started they worked me hard. I soon discovered there was a strict pecking order in the porter's room. The longer you'd been there, the less you did. A new boy like me would be running around pretty much all day long while some of the old-timers barely stirred from their seats. And right at the top of that pecking order was a bloke called Mally. He was just about the worst advertisement for the NHS you could find. He was in his late fifties and cadaverous-looking, with fingers and teeth stained a deep nicotine orange and a body so scrawny and jerky in its movements that he seemed more marionette than human. He'd been working there for decades and spent most of his day in the same battered chair in the corner, he sat with a very erect posture, like a meditating Buddha, presumably to indicate that he wasn't asleep, although, as his eyes were always closed, everyone assumed that he was. On the rare occasions he did any work, he would invariably make an announcement when he got back to the room. She'll be gone in two days' time, he'd say, shaking his head after wheeling some old deer off to the cardiac ward. Or he'd come in after collecting a homeless man from the ambulance. That poor sod won't see Wednesday morning. At first, I thought it was his way of reminding everyone of his seniority. But after a while, I came to realise he was nearly always right. I checked on the old woman, and she really did die two days later. And the homeless man went on Tuesday night, just as Mally said he would. In fact, in certain cases, he seemed to be able to predict the time of death to within the hour. I was fascinated. I watched him carefully and tried to work out what he was picking up on. It wasn't a single thing, I was sure of that. I guessed it was a combination of factors. Skin tone, posture, breathing, something in the eyes, perhaps. But although I couldn't put my finger on it, by watching Mally day in, day out, my subconscious somehow started to apprehend things the way he did. And so as I wheeled a new patient off to a ward, 
I'd make my own estimate of how long they'd got. I kept it to myself, of course, but after a week or two, I was definitely getting the hang of it. Then, one lunchtime, I was by myself in the porter's room when Mally came in. He sighed as he sat down and said, "'She'll be gone Sunday afternoon.' I knew the patient he was talking about. I'd seen him pushing her wheelchair in the corridor a few minutes before. So I gathered my courage and said, "'I'd say the small hours of Monday morning.' I had never spoken to Mally before, so it took him by surprise. He gave me a hard look, and then a big, toothy grin spread across his face. "'You want to bet on it?' he said. And things just took off from there. There was never much at stake, a quid, a fiver, a packet of cigarettes. And I quickly discovered how good Mally was. Over the first two weeks, he beat me every time. But my intuition was getting better by the day. On the Tuesday of the third week, I beat him for the first time. And by the end of the month, we were pretty much even Stevens. Then, one day there was a staff shortage, and we got paired together for a shift in the operating theatre. It was neurosurgery, which Mally said would mean a lot of waiting around. He was right. The first op didn't finish until after lunchtime, and as we pushed the patient out through the doors, I whispered to him, Three o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Even as I was saying it, Mally winced and shook his head at me, but it was too late. What was that? boomed a voice from behind. I turned and saw the surgeon standing next to his huge microscope. He'd removed his cap and gown and was peeling off his gloves. He had a mane of white blonde hair that swept back from his high forehead and cold, arrogant eyes that didn't so much as flicker as they held me in their gaze. "'I asked you a question,' he barked. "'What did you say?' "'Nothing,' I muttered. Suddenly he surged across the theatre towards me, his eyes ablaze with fury. "'How dare you!' he spat. "'You disrespectful, insolent young man! What's your name?' I gaped at him in astonishment. All he'd heard me say was a time. But I had the awful feeling that somehow he was onto our game, that he knew exactly what we were doing. He was only a few feet away now, and his gaze was so fierce it was all I could do not to flinch. "'Take his name!' he said to a junior doctor with an imperious wave of a finger. Then he turned, threw his mask and gloves into an orange bin, and slammed the lid. At the time I was terrified, but I was also intrigued, because I had never come across anyone remotely like him before, and it wasn't just the anger, the power, the sense of entitlement. There was something else. I couldn't say exactly what it was, but I had an inkling of something just beyond my understanding. "'Who was that guy?' I asked Mally, when we were in the porter's room later. "'Mr Gilbert,' he said without opening his eyes. "'No,' I said, "'I'm talking about the surgeon who shouted at me. "'He must be Dr Somebody. "'Well, he ain't. "'You don't call a surgeon doctor. "'You call him Mister.' "'I checked it out online later, and he was absolutely right. "'I kept a lookout for Mr Gilbert next day. "'I spotted him arriving early in the morning "'on a top-of-the-range carbon fibre road bike. "'He was dressed in tight black lycra, "'his calves and forearms tanned and sinewy, "'and as he dismounted, "'you could see there was an arrogant swagger about him. "'How old was he? "'You just couldn't tell. "'He was one of those super-fit blokes "'who could be any age from thirty-five to sixty. "'Later that morning,' I saw him processing down the corridor in a beautifully cut green tweed suit and a pink silk tie with an extravagantly large knot. 
There was a shoal of acolytes around him, junior doctors hanging on his every word, the more senior ones nodding gravely in agreement. He punctuated what he was saying with crisp, precise gestures. It struck me that he was in total command of them. When he stopped, they stopped. When he smiled, they did too. He radiated an intensity, a charisma, a sense of total certainty. I had shrunk back behind a filing cabinet as they passed, but even so, I knew he'd seen me. I felt the distaste in his eyes as they swept across me. First thing next morning, I was called into my manager's office. A woman from Human Resources was there as well, which obviously meant bad news. They didn't give me a chance to defend myself. They just piled in. Gross misconduct seemed to be the phrase of the day, because they repeated it God knows how many times. Do you understand? They kept on saying. Do you know what this means? And of course I nodded, because although I was only half listening, I knew where this was heading. When they were done, a security guard went with me to my locker, took my ID badge and escorted me from the premises. The sacking was a stitch-up, of course. The stuff they accused me of probably sounds bad in this day and age, but back then, it was the kind of thing everyone did. Smoking on hospital premises, lateness, failure to observe hygiene protocols. If I'd been on a proper contract, they couldn't have touched me. But I was only a temp, so if someone wanted me out, that was it. I was gone. I was still cursing them as I blundered across the drop-off area outside the main entrance, when I heard Mally's voice. "'Oi, mate!' he shouted. I turned and saw him making his way disjointedly towards me. "'Sorry to hear what happened, mate,' he said. "'They got no conscience, them people.' "'That's all right,' I said. I was actually rather touched that he bothered to come and say goodbye. "'I'll tell you what did for you, though,' he said, and he leant towards my ear. "'You was right.' "'About what?' I said. "'About that woman, you know, in the theatre. "'She died 3.15 yesterday afternoon.' You was almost spot on as it happens. Expect you pleased you didn't take the bet, I said. The thing is, he went on, and he was suddenly unusually serious. Mr Gilbert would have hated that, and Mr Gilbert ain't the kind of person you cross. Take it from me, mate. That's what got you fired. Just a word to the wise, know what I mean? Thanks, I said. Oh, yeah, and another thing, he said. I got you a leaving present. It's not carved with bunnies on or anything, so don't get too excited. He reached inside his overall and extracted something from the front right pocket of his jeans. Promise you won't open it till you get home? I nodded. It was a matchbox, and when I got back to my little attic room in Kentish Town, I slid it open to find a small lump of hash inside. It was wrapped in a slip of paper, on which was written, Enjoy, along with a mobile phone number. It made me feel good, partly because it was nice of Mally, and partly because it made me feel sort of cool and grown up. I'd seen plenty of kids smoke this stuff at school, so I knew roughly what to do. I opened all the dormer windows and rolled myself a rather misshapen one. Then I sat down at my desk and inhaled. I went over the events of the day. I'd been angry and upset earlier, but on reflection, it wasn't the worst thing that could happen. It wasn't as though I liked the job, and I was only planning to stay a few months. But what Mally had said about Mr Gilbert was interesting. Or, not exactly interesting, it was more that it was irksome. It irked me, the way he could pick up on a stray remark and terminate me, just like that. The way he could reach down from his cloud in the heavens and snuff me out like an ant. I switched on my laptop and googled him. Gilbert, neurosurgeon, produced a surprisingly small harvest. Then I figured out he was double-barrelled. Mr. Miles Gilbert, 
He must have lopped off the first half for the benefit of the plebs he had to deal with. Anyway, Miles Gilbert was the name he seemed to use in professional circles, because that brought up plenty of stuff. Papers on various aspects of neurosurgery, articles on surgical ethics, abstracts for conferences. Not that any of it meant much to me. But whenever he was mentioned by anyone else, they always included words like distinguished, brilliant, ahead of his time, foremost of his generation. Yes, he was clearly a top dog. But another name kept on coming up in the search as well. Dovedale. I clicked and was taken to a site dedicated to the English peerage. Rafe Owen Sinclair Miles Gilbert, neurosurgeon and scholar, born 29th of March 1944, married 1974, one son, succeeded 1978 as fourth Baron Dovedale. Well, well, well. He was some kind of lord, a genuine aristocrat. Was that why he had that strange presence? Was it arrogance, privilege? Was that what I had picked up on? I couldn't be sure. I'd never met a lord before. Come to that, I'd never met a neurosurgeon either. I rolled myself a second joint, slightly better constructed this time, and replayed the way he'd raged towards me across the operating theatre. Then I closed my eyes and saw him in his blood-flecked green scrubs, a mask across his mouth, his great bouffon hair crammed into his cap, and his eyes huge and boggled behind his magnifying surgical loops. I took a long, slow draw on the joint and pictured the savage intensity of his concentration as he soared into his patient's skull. It was extraordinary to think that for him, this kind of medieval horror was an everyday occurrence. Here was a man who could peel a person's skin back from the bones of their face and then sit down and eat a sandwich lunch. Here was someone who reenacted the most savage Aztec sacrifices on an almost daily basis. It was small wonder if he mistook himself for a god. I put my head back and let the smoke out slowly through my nostrils. It gave me a headache just to think about him. Those joints were the first of far too many I smoked over the next few weeks. I'm not quite sure why, but for some reason, I just hit the self-destruct button. I called Mally the next day, and ordered the same again in twice the quantity, the same at the weekend, and so it went on. My landlady... Mrs. Perfides had questioned me about the strange smell in my room after the first night, and so I'd resorted to smoking in the local park, and it had felt good to be out there, watching the stars and turning stuff over in my mind. It felt like I was getting on top of things, working things out. But then I'd wake up next morning parched and wasted to discover I couldn't remember a single thing I'd thought. And I guess I just got stuck in a loop, going round and round and round. It was one of those disastrous passages in life that leads on to many more. By the end of the month, I hadn't found another job, and I'd run through more than half the money I'd saved for Thailand. It was stupid of me. I was ashamed. I stopped calling my mum, my sister too. I, I couldn't bear to explain. I, I simply withdrew. I did eventually get another job, although not until late July, and by then the chance of Thailand had gone. If I was being honest, I knew it was my fault, but a part of me couldn't let go of the idea that somehow Mr Gilbert was to blame. I started at Warwick Uni in early October, but I was in completely the wrong frame of mind. 
I woke up late nearly every morning with a pounding headache. No surprise, really, given the amount I'd smoked the night before. I didn't like the campus. I hated the course. I stuck it out for a couple of terms, and then I gave Mrs. Perfides a ring. She didn't sound thrilled at the idea of taking me back, but the room was vacant. And so, the next summer, there I was, in my little attic room in Kentish Town again, with nothing to show for the previous year of my life. Of course, I was being an idiot, but who cared? My mum had found herself a new man and seemed to have lost interest in me. My sister was doing her own thing, and there were plenty of jobs in London back then, which meant I could take care of myself. I picked up a bit of bar work, did the odd few days on building sites, and then I got myself a job in a bookshop in Camden. I liked books, and so that suited me just fine. I couldn't see the point of doing anything else. And time just passed. How long? Three years, I think, or maybe more like four. Anyway, my stint at the Whittington seemed an epoch away. I'd lost touch with Mally when I went off to uni. The image of the scary Mr Gilbert had faded from my mind. It had been a very long time since I'd foretold anyone's death. And then, one summer, three incidents in quick succession made it all come swimming back. The first happened when I was leaving the house for work one morning. I was putting on my bike helmet when Mrs Perfides called to me. We need your opinion before you go. I went over to the kitchen doorway. It was obvious from the way her husband was slumped in his chair they'd been having an argument. I've been telling him for weeks he should see a doctor, she said. He's not well. Anyone can see that. I mean, just look at him. I realised that I'd never looked at Mr Perfides properly before. But now I studied him more intently. Yes, there was a funny kind of sheen to him. Well, said Mrs Perfides, what do you think? I took a moment to consider how to handle it, because it was crystal clear that her husband was ill, seriously ill. I would have to tell them the truth, however blunt it sounded. Unless you do something now, I said, I, I don't think he'll last beyond the end of August. They both stared at me in amazement. What do you mean? she said. I would say August 22nd or 23rd. The precision of the date startled them even more, and it must have made quite an impression, because Mr Perfides went off to the doctor's surgery that very morning. As it turned out, they caught his cancer in the early stages and got him onto chemo double quick, and after that, Mrs Perfides never had a bad word for me. The second incident happened just a few weeks later. I was walking past the Tesco on Kentish Town Road when the thought entered my head that there was a bloke in there with a problem. As I walked on, I couldn't stop myself estimating his chances. Six months max, said a voice in my head. I tried to ignore it. I tried to bat the idea away. But it struck me so forcibly that I had to go back. But when I got there, I realised the shop was closed. In fact, it had closed a couple of hours before. And that was when the penny dropped. People say that everyone has that first time when they pass their reflection and don't recognise themselves. And that's what had happened. The person with the problem was me. I stared at myself. I'd put on weight, far more than I'd realised. I was pasty-faced and hollow-eyed, and there was something, I wasn't sure what, but there was definitely something wrong with me. It shook me, I can tell you. When I got back to my room, I spent over an hour looking at myself in the mirror. Was I actually ill, or had it just been a trick of the light? I'd never been to a doctor, and I didn't want to start now, but that thought... Six months kept coming back to me. In the end, I decided it would be stupid to ignore it. And the following day, I called the GP. They couldn't fit me in for the next two and a half weeks, and so in the meantime, I resolved to live more healthily. I went out and bought some quinoa, 
I even cut down on the dope a bit, although that only lasted a couple of nights. Because the third night, I fell right off the wagon, got myself completely blitzed, and woke up next day feeling dreadful. I decided to pull a sickie from work, and after lunch, I took a long, slow bike ride down to Hyde Park in the hope of clearing my head. And that was where the third incident took place. It was a fine afternoon, and I was lolling on the grass just south of the Serpentine. The headache was easing, and I was watching the world go by. There's a long straight track in that part of the park called Rotten Row, where people can skateboard or ride bikes or what have you. Anyway, there I was, lounging in the shade of a sweet chestnut tree, when I saw a figure on a racing bike come storming towards me. Even from a distance, the way he hunched over the handlebars caught my eye. And as he came closer, although he was in full lycra, complete with helmet and wraparound shades, there was something about him, the set of his jaw, his savage concentration, that told me it had to be Mr Gilbert. I got up as he whirred past and watched him disappear in the direction of Knightsbridge. When I got home that evening, I looked him up online again. It was the first time I'd done it in ages. I decided to cover my bases and type both Miles Gilbert and Lord Dovedale into Google. And what I discovered, I just couldn't get my head round. At the top of the list was an article from the Daily Telegraph from two years previously. English peer dies in skiing accident. A British man has died in a skiing accident in the Swiss Alps after taking a wrong turning on the slopes and hurtling off a cliff. Lord Dovedale an eminent neurosurgeon, known to his family and friends as Ross, was killed on Saturday afternoon. I dug a little deeper and came across a formal obituary. There were details of his education, Winchester, New College Oxford, University College Hospital, and then a summary of his career. Striking appearance, charismatic speaker, generally acknowledged to be the foremost neurosurgeon of his generation. I read all the way to the end. His remains will be interred in the mausoleum at Metcombe Park, the family seat in East Devon. His son, Owen, also a medical professional, succeeds him as the fifth Baron Dovedale. I stubbed out my joint and sat back in my chair. This was really odd. So was it the son I had seen that afternoon? I hadn't had a particularly good look at him, but I could have sworn it was the same man who had terrified me that day at the Whittington. There was only one thing for it. I would have to take another look. Whoever he was, I suspected he wasn't the kind of person to cycle around aimlessly, and so I reasoned that his route through Hyde Park might be a regular one. I called in sick again next morning and cycled to the same spot. I lay in wait the whole afternoon, and much of the evening too, but he didn't show. But at almost exactly the same time the following day, there he was, he wasn't speeding along this time, he was coasting, hardly pedalling at all, his hands off the handlebars, his arms hanging loosely by his side. As he came closer, I could see his mouth moving and realised he must be taking a call. It was certainly someone who looked very like Mr Gilbert, but with the shades and the helmet on, I couldn't be a 100% sure. I hopped on my bike and followed at a discreet distance. He got just past the end of the Serpentine and then suddenly turned right across Rotten Row and down to the Albert Gate. I followed him through the traffic lights, across the main road and down a narrow street in the shadow of a curious circular tower. Suddenly, I was in a different world entirely. Long terraces of white stucco-fronted buildings, rows of grand porticos, some with the flags of embassies flying above. I'd never been to this part of town before, but I guessed it must be Belgravia. 
He weaved nonchalantly through a knot of traffic and then turned an abrupt left, and in the time it took me to get to the corner, he disappeared. I was at one end of a terrace of huge houses fronting onto a narrow street and a private railed-off garden. Damn, there was no sign of him. I chained my bike to the railings and sauntered up and down. And then I caught sight of his silhouette, climbing the steps to his front door. From my angle, I couldn't be sure which doorway he'd gone into, so I stayed the other side of the road and waited for signs of life. To judge by the closed blinds, the drawn curtains, the shut shutters, it seemed that most of these places were empty, owned by wealthy overseas investors, probably. And then a light came on in the first floor of the corner house at the end. Although it was part of the terrace, it had a different design to the other houses. While they were all flat-fronted, this one had a bay window, jutting out over the drop to the basement. I stayed on the opposite side of the road and approached cautiously. The bottom of the bay was a good six feet above street level, which meant that most of the room was obscured. All I could see was an ancient chandelier and the top of a painting in an ornate gilt frame. I wanted to get a better look, so I crossed the road and climbed the first three steps to the front door. From there, I could see it was a portrait of a Victorian in a starched collar with a black necktie and a full white beard. I had to smile, because with his high forehead and his cold blue eyes, the bloke was the absolute spit of Mr Gilbert. Yes, this was the right house. And then the lights of the chandelier came on. I, I froze for a moment. What to do? I couldn't go back to the street because I would be seen, so I skipped up another couple of steps into the porch. I pressed myself against the front door, my heart pounding. From there, by twisting my head to the right, I could see into the bay from the side. A second later, he appeared. He rested his knuckles on the sill of the central window and stared up and down the street. He had changed into a loose-fitting white linen shirt, and he didn't have the great sweep of white blonde hair that I'd remembered. Instead, he sported a close military-style buzz cut. But this was never Mr Gilbert's son. It was him. This was definitely the same man who had confronted me at the Whittington Hospital. I was sure of it. He stared into the street for what seemed like an age. Was he just enjoying the view? Or did he have a sense of being watched? My heart was still pounding. If he should turn his head to look over his left shoulder, he couldn't fail to see me. And then, of course, he did. He didn't react. He didn't so much as raise an eyebrow. He walked quite calmly over to the side window. We couldn't have been more than six feet apart, and his cold, unblinking eyes corkscrewed into me. He recognised me, I could see that, but there was something else, something altogether more alarming, because I suddenly realised what was so extraordinary about him. I understood the strange quality I'd seen in him at the Whittington, because it wasn't just that he was the same man I'd met more than five years ago. It wasn't just that the fourth Baron Dovedale was far less dead than he'd have us believe. It was that... Unlike all those patients at the Whittington, unlike Mr. Perfides, unlike even me, there was no sense of mortality about him at all, not so much as a hint of it. And as the recognition dawned on my face, he could see I knew. He knew I had stumbled upon his secret. I cycled back to Kentish Town in a daze. I don't know how many red lights I ran, how many drivers cursed me as they slammed on their brakes. My mind was churning. Why would a man like that go to so much trouble to fake his own death? How could he be so openly, so brazenly alive and nobody see it? And how was it there could be no sense of mortality 
about him at all. There was obviously something wrong here. When I got back, I rolled a joint, lay on my bed and tried to calm myself. Was I in trouble? I rather feared I was. What was it that Mally had said? Mr. Gilbert is not someone you cross, and if he was prepared to have me sacked for a stray remark, what would he do to protect his secret? I cursed myself. I was an idiot. Why did I have to stick my nose in? Because he would come for me. I knew it. He would do something to silence me. If I could have left the country, I would have, but I didn't have the means, and so I did everything I could to make myself invisible. I bought a new mobile phone. I cancelled my social media accounts. I deleted any online references to myself I could find, and I started making inquiries, discreet inquiries, about finding another job, another flat, maybe even out of town. The next three days were awful. I was consumed with anxiety, and it wasn't just about Mr. Gilbert, because the day of my doctor's appointment was fast approaching too. I dreaded the nagging about smoking and drinking and diet. I feared the examinations they would no doubt inflict upon me. But it was nothing like as bad as I thought. In fact, she seemed like quite a nice woman. I told her about the headaches. She listened politely and then tapped away at the keyboard. Well, according to your medical records, she said. I'm sorry, I interrupted, but I don't have any medical records. I've never been to a doctor before. Ah, but you do, she said. We have them from when you were a child, of course. And then she tapped her keyboard again. Yes, and then there was an occasion about five years ago. Oh, and another about three years ago. No, that can't be. I said. I told you, I've never been to a GP. Well, it seems you have, she said quietly. You were complaining of persistent headaches, panic attacks, and oh well, this might explain it. You were also complaining of memory loss. No, I said. I'm telling you, that's not right. I could feel myself getting agitated. Someone has tampered with my records. I said. She smiled. She seemed so nice, so sure of herself. That simply isn't possible. But I think they have. I could hear my voice growing shrill. This had to be Mr. Gilbert. This was how he would get to me. Of course, it made perfect sense. And I was about to go on and explain when the doctor drew herself up in her chair. In a way that said she would brook no further discussion. Now, I don't want to alarm you, she said, but in my opinion, there is at least a chance you are suffering from a brain tumor. That stopped me in my tracks. What? I said. I'm not saying that you are. I'm saying you might be. I felt myself reeling like I'd been punched. She went on. And so I'm going to refer you to a specialist at Charing Cross. They'll contact you directly by the time of the appointment. People say all kinds of things about the NHS, but in this case, they certainly didn't hang about. The following Tuesday afternoon, I was in the waiting room of the neuro-oncology unit. I still hadn't come to terms with it. After the doctors, I'd gone back and looked up brain tumor online. I mean, it was bad. It was serious. And what made it worse was my utter confusion. One part of me said I'd be a fool to trust them, but another voice said if I was ill, then I needed treatment. The thing was. Whatever the doctor said, I was pretty certain I hadn't been to a GP before, or had I? I mulled it over obsessively, but the more I thought, the less sure of myself I became. In the end, it just seemed easier to turn up for the appointment. The atmosphere in the waiting room was horrible. 
Not surprising, I suppose, given the reason we were all there. And it was made no better by the stout old woman who called out our numbers in a voice that was almost impossible to hear. After a couple of hours, the stress of it exhausted me, and I must have nodded off because I was woken by a sharp jab in the ribs from the bloke to my left. I think it's you, he said, nodding at my ticket. I looked up and saw the stout woman looking around impatiently, with the door to the consulting area open behind her. And at that very same moment, I noticed a presence through the doorway. It was only a glimpse, but it was something about the way he moved that alerted me. And in that glimpse, I was also fairly certain I caught sight of a blonde white buzz cut. He was there. He was waiting for me. I jumped to my feet. This could be no coincidence. My God! So he had tampered with my medical records. There was no other explanation. And there was no bloody way I was going in there. It would be insane. I grabbed my backpack and sprinted out of the hospital as fast as I could. When I reached the safety of the Fulham Palace Road outside, I stood there panting for a few moments. And as I did so, I felt something change in me. It was as if up to that point I had waded knee-deep through a mud of uncertainty, hesitation, confusion. But suddenly, there on the street, it came to me. What I needed to do came to me with startling clarity. I needed to find out the truth about Mr Gilbert, the Baron Dovedale, whatever he was called. And what's more, I knew exactly how to do it. When I got back to my attic room, I didn't roll a joint. I didn't waste a moment wallowing in regret or self-pity. Instead, I switched on the laptop and went back to the obituary I'd found a couple of weeks before. And there, right at the end, was the sentence, His remains will be interred in the mausoleum at Metcombe Park, the family seat in East Devon. If anywhere held the key to his secret, this would be the place. I had my bike on the train to Exeter next morning. It was a long journey down, and an even longer bike ride after that. I arrived at Metcombe just after six o'clock that evening. It was a private estate, surrounded by a ten-foot-high brick wall, nearly two miles in circumference and forbiddingly secure. There were just four gateways, each one topped by a lion or a stag or something like that, and locked tightly shut. I'd cycle around pretty much the whole thing before I found a way over via an old tree, which must have toppled onto the wall in the recent storm. As I lowered myself to the ground, I wasn't sure which part of the estate I was in, but I'd already located the mausoleum on a map, so it shouldn't be too hard to find. I kept close to the wall and scuttled along until it came into view. It was an imposing edifice, a neoclassical temple, which stood immediately in front of a steeply sloping hillside. The façade was dominated by two huge bronze doors, green with age, flanked by two pairs of moss-blackened columns. As I approached, I could see that it wasn't a freestanding building. Instead, it acted as a portal into the side of the hill itself. The doors were clearly not meant to be opened in a hurry. They had no handles and no other means of gaining any purchase. For a moment, I was at a loss as to how to get in. Then I noticed a short flight of steps to the left. It led down to a small, solid wooden side door. It was locked, but the frame showed signs of rot. I put my shoulder against it and heaved. It gave very slightly. I tried again and heard it groan as a small part of it tore away. If I could find something to wedge into the gap, I might just be able to lever it. I climbed back up the steps and hunted round for a suitable implement. After a few minutes, I came across a piece of old fence post, which I thought might do the job. I returned to the side door and applied as much force as I could. 
It took a good ten minutes of wedging and jemmying, but then, with a great creak and a snap, the frame came free from the wall and the whole door sagged inwards, allowing me just enough room to squeeze inside. I stood for a few moments in the darkness, listening to the drip of water and breathing the stale, loamy air. I flexed my fingers and felt my knuckles click. Then I switched on the torch on my phone and flashed it around. It was a ghastly place. The two side walls were plain brick, rising to a vaulted ceiling way up in the gloom, which presumably supported the weight of the hill above. Tree roots dangled down here and there, and the floor was strewn with bricks and little falls of mortar. At the far end was the crypt itself, four huge shelves stretching the full width of the building, the top one a good twelve feet above the ground. Each shelf was divided into six separate compartments and fronted by glass panels, most of which were filthy and crazed with age. I hadn't really thought through what I would do when I got to this stage, but now was no time for doubt. I wouldn't allow myself to consider, I would simply act. What did that mean? Well, I still had the fence post in my hand, so I chose a glass panel at shoulder height and hit it as hard as I could. It shattered with an almighty crash that echoed horribly in the vault, and then there was a gentle tinkling sound as the fragments of glass fell to the floor. I dropped the post, reached into the shelf, and grabbed hold of either side of the coffin within. I could feel my nails sink into the soft, moist wood, and then I started to tug it out. It got to halfway, and then it began to tip. I lost control of it, jumped back and let it fall. It hit the ground with a great splintering crunch. I bent down and flashed my phone light across it. The wood at the toe ends of the coffin had split open, and to my horror, I could see something was sticking out. I bent closer and realised they were the bones of a foot. A rather small foot, a woman's foot perhaps, or maybe even a child's. I stood up and drew breath. I looked more carefully at the shelf the coffin had come from and saw that facing me was a brass label. My hand was shaking as I wiped away the grime and read, The Honourable Alexandra Sarah Louise Miles Gilbert, 1895 to 1906. My God, it was a little girl. I suddenly felt sick. What the hell was I doing? I swallowed and took a few deep breaths. I needed to stay focused. As I got this far, I would keep on going. But I had to think. I ran my torch beam along the shelves and saw there was a brass label for each compartment, so all I had to do was find the barons. I rubbed at the labels randomly using the cuff of my sweatshirt. At the sixth or seventh time I got lucky. I found a label on a shelf at hip height which read, Second Baron Dovedale. Yes! I smashed the glass panel, reached into the compartment and dragged out the coffin. This one came more easily and landed with a crash on the ground but didn't break. I shone my phone light across the rich seasoned wood. With some trepidation, I gave the coffin lid a nudge with my foot, but it appeared to be stuck. I tried again and felt it budge slightly. I aimed a sharp kick at it. This time, it flew off and crashed against the wall. I closed my eyes, counted to five, and then looked inside. It was empty. Empty! Of course it was! This was what I'd come for! In a frenzy, I rubbed away at the other brass labels. Honourable this, Baroness that, Lady so-and-so. But I needed to find a Baron, a Baron. At last, I came across a slightly newer and less corroded label than the others. My heart was beating fit to bust as I read, 
fourth Baron Dovedale. My God, this was him. I smashed the glass, reached inside and dragged out the coffin. It was in much better condition than the others, as it should be. It had only been there a couple of years, and even before it hit the ground, I knew from the weight that there was nothing inside. I bent down and wrenched off the lid. I was right! I remembered the feeling I'd had when I stood in that Belgravia street and his eyes had corkscrewed into me, and I remembered the phrase that had come to my mind. Not a hint of mortality about him. Oh, my God, I was right, because the Baron Dovedale didn't die, did he? This was the same man, faking his death over and over, inheriting his own title, changing names, moving through the generations. This was the secret. My train of thought was interrupted by a voice from the other end of the vault. It was the voice of someone accustomed to giving orders, cool, clear and commanding, with a gravelly edge of menace to it. There's no need to do any more damage, he said. The others are empty too. I turned. There was a click, and I was dazzled by the beam of a powerful flashlight. My blood ran cold. My God, you've made a mess, he said quietly. I didn't know what to say. I, I just stared at him. You're the youth I saw hiding in my porch the other day, aren't you, he said. The one I caught playing that vile game in my operating theatre. I still said nothing. And now this, this outrage... He gestured at the smashed coffins, the broken glass, the bones. Well, what have you got to say for yourself? I'm, I'm sorry, I stammered. I, I, I just needed to know. Oh, yes? What did you need to know? I, I needed to know the truth about you. Oh, I see. And have you discovered it? Y yes, I, I, I think I have, I said in a voice not much above a whisper. Well, that's something then, isn't it? He said crisply. I hope it was worth the effort. He placed his flashlight on the ground beside him, so now I could see his silhouette more clearly, framed by the huge bronze doors behind. A hideous, warm sensation was growing on me, and I realised I'd wet myself. Well, what, what are you going to do with me? I asked. His eyes bored into me as if they had a light source all of their own. I thought I might get a few tools from the car, he said. Remove the top of your skull and then chain you to the sycamore outside and leave your brains naked to the sky for the gulls to feast on while you're still alive, of course. I felt my chest constrict. My breath started coming in short, desperate gasps. I closed my eyes. No, I sobbed. Oh, my God, no! Then his harsh, booming laugh thundered around the vault. What do you take me for, you fool? Some kind of monster? I could taste the salt and the tears streaming down my face. I tucked my hands under my armpits, threw my head back and let out a long, reverberant howl of anguish. The echo subsided. I kept my eyes closed and heard the crunch of his footsteps approaching. Oh, for God's sake, pull yourself together, he said. He was no more than four or five feet away. And then suddenly his tone changed completely. Look, he said, I'm not going to do you any harm. But you are. I, I know what you're like. I was still trembling. You're going to do something to me. I think you'll find you're wrong about that, he said. But you had me sacked from the Whittington, didn't you? What? 
and then you tampered with my records, my medical records. I did no such thing. Why would I do something like that? I opened my eyes. Because I know your secret, I said. Oh, for goodness sake. I know why these coffins are empty. He shook his head like a disappointed schoolteacher. And do you think that makes you special? Do you imagine you're the first? My dear boy, I sit on committees. I advise the government. People are aware. Of course they are. But not people like me. No, he said, and smiled in a slightly rueful way. I'm afraid not. I'm afraid you've stumbled into a world in which you don't belong. I was finding it hard to take all this in. My thoughts seemed to be assembling themselves in slow motion. So what happens? What will happen to me? I asked. Are you just going to let me walk away? I mean, what if I told someone? What if I went to the newspapers? Oh, come on, he said. They'd laugh. My continued existence is preposterous. Too preposterous even for them. He smiled again, perhaps at something I had stirred in the depths of his memory. But you do raise a good point, he continued. I'm afraid I can't just let you walk away. No, I'm sorry about that. First of all, we'll need to get that condition of yours seen to. My condition, I repeated numbly. Yes, and then we'll find a place for you. His manner had become smooth and professional, in some kind of institution. You mean a, a mental institution? We have nicer names for such places these days. I suppose that was the moment when I should have run. He couldn't have stopped me. But his self-assurance was so stifling, so overwhelming that the thought didn't even occur. Right, he said, and squatted down next to the second baron's casket. Will you help me put these coffins back where they belong? Think it's the least you can do, don't you? Baron Dovedale's Secret was written and performed by Elgin Barrett. Technical presentation was by Malcolm Blackmore and music by John Walsh.